1997, a group of women got together and founded a collective that they called WEAVE, Women's Education and Voice Expression. All black women, or women of colour, they each had very different stories, but what they had in common was the love of words. Words as a means of telling those stories and making themselves heard. They were also claiming their space in the hitherto unwelcoming literary world as writers. But over a quarter of a century later, some of the original members of Weave met up for a reunion at the Women's Library at Artscape, home of Woman's Own, where, facilitated by Barbara Boswell, they shared their memories, reflections, their journeys and their laughter. between us, the blood of our experience exchanged. In the company of these women, anonymous spaces turn sacred, willingly, courageously reveal our vulnerability. In the company of these women, I need not, and yet I can, cry for the sister I never had, for my mother's wound recall. Mourn as my grandmother's face emerges in another, honouring each one in me. In the company of these women, I laugh, I play like my preteen self. I can lay my masks on the ground for us all to dance around, synchronising, recognising our flowing roles in this tribe of she. heard is an excerpt from the poem Women Weaving by the collective of women writers Weave. I'm Barbara Boswell and it is my honor to be hosting a conversation with some of these members here today. Weave is women's education and artistic voice expression, an organization of black women writing founded in 1997. It has been 26 years since then. It is also the 23rd year since the publication of Weave's groundbreaking historical publication, Ink at Boiling Point, a selection of 21st century black women's writing from the southern tip of Africa, which was the first multi-genre anthology published by black women in South Africa. Today, there's a reunion where we reflect on what we've accomplished, the work that they did, and where some of the members are today. With me, sitting around a table and looking most beautiful, are seven of these 
wonderful members of the collective. Malika Ndlovu, we are Williams, Patricia Farrenfort, Maganfri Pillay, Gertrude Fester Wickham, and Mavis Smallberg. Welcome everyone. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. So I want to start today with asking some of the founder members here in the room. What was the reason for founding Weave and how did the collective start in 1997? Well, I recall, this is Gertrude, I recall New Year's Eve 1997 and it was probably at 1am, which may mean that many have already had some champagne. I don't know who started or raised it, but one of the women started complaining about this book, this book by Pamela Euster, Dancing with a Poor Man's Daughter. Mm. And this person was so angry, and she knew nothing about District 6. It's all wrong, it's all distorted. And so the conversation went. And I just listened very, very deeply to this, and I said, well, we cannot stop anyone from writing, but what I do think is that maybe in two weeks from now, I know you're not all very, very sober. <laughs> I, I'd like to invite you to start a woman, a black women's writing collective. I'll remind you. So that, as far as I remember, was one of the first things about we mm. just black women starting to get together to write. I just need to say that as someone who is a political activist, we always wanted to write, but there was never time. There was never time. And we had all these women from all over the world coming and interviewing us and then for three hours in writing books. So there was also this irony that we wanted to write but we didn't have time. So 1997 was yes. started. Yeah. I remember that story as well. I'm not sure if I was there or not. You were. <laughs> Joan Baker. <laughs> yeah. The story lived. Yeah, <laughs> no, Joan Baker was there. And, and I remember that we wanted to have something that was practical as a name and something that was also created. So we came up with the notion of weave, but we didn't actually know what all those particular letters would symbolize, you know, the acronym of it. And I remember we came to women's education, and then what did the last one? And Joan Baker said, voice expression. And so that's where we came to, to uh, our name. We all then agreed. And uh, yeah, Joan, was, Joan was something special. Maybe just at this point to say that we dedicate this to former members, Gladys Thomas, Joan Baker, Mavis Smallbook, they were part of COSOL. And I also want to say that in the late 80s, the country was vibrant and dynamic, and there were all these voices coming up. And yes, the doctors organized, the lawyers organized, the teachers organized, and so too the writers mm. in the Congress of South African, African Writers. And they also started lots of work. Well, I remember Lynn being quite aggressive when she said, will your people shut up and stop complaining and get your own thing going, and by next week something must happen. <laughs> <laughs> That's hands on it, absolutely. So how often did you meet when it started? Mm. I can't recall, no. but maybe months a month. It uh, started mm. in fits and start. Mm. Remember there were new members, I think then McGansfree came along. Yeah, and then at the later stage, there were these young women 
it brought a whole new energy. Mm. People like William and Malika, mm. and yet with Kaji. So there were also phases. There, also mm. phases. there was also a slight, a slight us and them, older members, older in age and younger. And I think the younger people really brought a, a whole new energy and an impetus that we get to publish. Mm. And I think that, that it, was very, it was very exciting because I think we complemented the group. Even though I think that, I don't know if it was Joan or someone was a bit upset about something, I can't remember what it was, but it actually then just chilled into this wonderful working collective, feeding, feeding from one another, feeding one another energy and also ideas. Mm. Uh, if I can say, what I remembered is I was excited because the women needed a safe space just to say, I am a writer was a really big deal. Mm. Yes. So, so even just that, mm. having that space where I could share my work and other people were willing to listen. I don't think we were very critical of each other, mm. but I don't think we were trying to be either. No, we were no. just saying, hey, share, mm. you listen, I'll listen. And that's really was, um, I don't know that publishing you know, when we initially met, it was like, okay, that would be nice to have. But first and foremost, a safe space where we could claim that we were writers. <laughs> and then also, you know, just have that kind of support. I just want to actually give credit to the Gladys Thomases of the world. Gladys Thomas and then later Joan Baker and Mavis Smallberg, they were actually writing while we were all in the political trenches. Mm. And when we had our, our meetings, our political rallies, there'd be a, a, a Mavis reading a poem or a Gladys Thomas or, a, you know, mm. so they really, and Gladys Thomas also captured quite a lot of the work of the struggles like the Weinberg Seven. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and also uh, we must give um, credit to Anne Schuster and Anne-Marie Hendricks because I started writing prolifically in the 80s because it kept me sane. And they had a workshop at CAP and they brought out a book, a booklet called People Read Their Work. And that was like the first publication of the people, I didn't really know, I can't remember who was all part of that group. And then from there on I joined Anne and Anna-Marie's a writing group weekly, first in Cork Bay and then in Musenberg, and it was just Sent such a book. wonderful experience. And then when COSO started, we said we must teach others also to write because their methodology was very good. They they actually uh, acknowledged some Israeli person. I think they were in a workshop in Israel or something like that. And anyway, and then when COSO started, we asked them to run workshops with us so that we could use that methodology to help other people to write. So they came for two weeks. It was a wonderful two weeks. Donald Perenzi was exceptionally good and uh, in in being open to it, you know, because sometimes men, doesn't, they don't want to do silly things as we are more prepared to do. And I remember he was my blindfold partner. 
and he was leading me through the offices and put me on a chair and I didn't get down, sit down. And then we danced around me and I was dancing with him in the chair. It was so wonderful that I wrote a poem about that experience called Blindfold. And then after that, he and I did workshops at Sinton High. We did it at Garlandale and a couple of other schools. But it, unfortunately, we didn't continue with it to, you know, it was like one-offs. And, uh, and then we did a workshop with UCO. That's um, United Women's yes, Organization. Yes, too. And we did a workshop with them. And then the other organization that was also instrumental was WICTU, which was the Western the Cape, Cape Teachers, Teachers Union. Trade Union. Yeah. yeah, Trade Union. And that was the first trade union of teachers. And actually, Satu came from that, but they never acknowledged that. And so they brought out a monthly magazine about our meetings and what was happening in the schools. And then I also contributed to that magazine because most of my poems at the time was related to my school experience and what the children went through and Ashley Creel and, you know, Anton, uh, what's his surname? French. French. Yeah, and so on. So, yeah, so that was where also I was used to trying to get for people to to be published in what we call the barefoot publications. Mm -hmm. yeah. Just to say, Joan Baker, quite a lot, and Gladys Thomas, Joan Baker in this anthology has the, the story Undercover Comrades. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. So it's all about the political struggle. So let's move now on. That's a good point to mm -hmm. move on to this publication in Cat Boiling Point. Mm -hmm. This publication, as I mentioned earlier, was a selection of 21st century black women's writing from the southern tip of Africa, multi-genre poems, excerpts of short stories, little bits of memoir, life writing, plays. Um, did I miss anything? <laughs> <laughs> and it was published in... And some undefinable genres. <laughs> yes, yes, something that defies... Some defined, queer, yeah. defined <laughs> genres, yes. And this um, collection was published in 2000. It was edited by Malikandlo Wu, Dila Khan, and Shelley Barry were the editors. But the, what was really unique about it was the multi-genre nature that it represented so many different voices and different genres. So I want to talk a little bit about the process. First of all, why was it self-published? Mm. That's uh, Malika speaking now, but also I'm speaking on behalf of those fellow sister members and then the labor of choosing <laughs> to go into editing school, I want to say, because none of us could ever have asserted that we were editors before this experience. It was like diving into the deep end, um, both out of necessity, I want to say, because, but also agency. And Gertrude actually was definitely the butt kicker, I want to say. In terms and I of want saying, to say that yes. it was very difficult to get a group to 
to volunteer to be the editors. And I said, but just think of it. It's going to go onto your CV that you are editors <laughs> of a book. <laughs> and there was such an immense aspect of learning, as mm. she said, as she predicted, that came out of that process, both in the fact that probably in retrospect we would think again about whether having three editors is a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> because essentially you set up uh, you know, a three-way conversation that every single change or step of the way has to be negotiated with three people instead of just you mm. or another person um, but I think that that was even the nature of where our journey was at the time it, everybody was so invested regardless of whether there was as Gertrude and Mavis have been pointing to there were so many whatever the challenges were of the time whether they were personal with what's happening politically around us but that sense of agency of us feeding off each other's energy and encouragement and support made us feel like, yes, we can do this. <laughs> and to go from, can I call myself a writer, to, oh, yes, we can, and we're going to name this and locate it not only in Cape Town or South Africa, even though most of us had, were located here coming from different parts of the country, but we wanted to anchor ourselves in that black woman title and then also on the continent, which is part of consciously responding to the disconnect that our history intentionally set up, that we are this little part of Africa that actually isn't part of a very vast continent <laughs> of influence as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. I have to say right here as a little side note that at the most recent Open Book Festival in Cape Town in 2023, there were members of the Ugandan Writers Collective. Femrite. Femrite. Mm -hmm which at the time, me coming from KwaZulu and coming here, I remember thinking of just the tragedy of us not knowing about each other's efforts against so many obstacles to write, to share writing, to teach writing, and address the need of women. So I learned that coming into Weave and with you, Gertrude, also telling us about Femrite and so that, that uh, collective was here this year, and it feels like we are now in that momentous cycle of remembering and, and recording this version of her story. In terms of the book, um, Mavis's name should be on the cover because she, is, she did so much work in terms of also working with the various revised editions of our book. Um, it, its first edition came out in 2000. Um, and was launched at the District 6 Museum with a really beautiful event. We gave ourselves permission on multiple levels, both to self-publish because we didn't feel like it was. It was a pretty hostile South African publishing landscape in terms of black yeah. women's voices. We were being told what we shouldn't publish or what no one was interested in hearing yep. in the democratic era or these are not the kind of stories that sell or we don't sell multi-genre anthologies, it's hard enough just selling poetry or short stories as collections. But also political. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. and then, so essentially, if we were calling ourselves, claiming that voice mm -hmm. that Joan was emphasizing, it had to be also in the process of making the book. So we had 14 writers working in comp whatever genre suited them, because writing, as Gertrude has also alluded to, was one aspect of who we were. We had filmmakers, theater makers, people who were writing in different genres, and we weren't going to conform to anybody's idea of how we should express ourselves. So we ended up with this mammoth publication and also felt that there were other voices 
um, around at the time that needed to be harnessed in a way under this weave umbrella and invited Hali Jwetsi Tehlana, Hali, uh, Waruna Siane and Diana Ferris and Carmen Miles Reisenberg to be part of the first publication. And that's how we got to be all of those voices in the book at the time. And the last thing I want to say is that our launch was also really enriched by the critique and input of um, Desre, Dr. Desiree Lewis, who wrote the foreword, um, and to Gail Smith, who is also really a well-known feminist and writer and activist um, in her work, at, who did our launch and also did a lot to get our book's promotion in the mainstream media at the time. And Margie Heldenhuis, who's another name from that era, um, who worked with the proofreading and Barbara Boswell, who is sitting with mm. us as the host, <laughs> very calmly as the host of this conversation, has done phenomenal arcs of growth and support for Weave's work from way back then. And it began with her being our administrator, which we believe is probably the most important role. She anchored a lot of us getting to meetings, following up on the editions of the book, liaising with printers, putting forward NAC proposals. So really. Provided even a venue for all our meetings, because at least it was a regular place. Exactly. So then we started to regulate our <laughs> just our consistency and then the momentum of inspiration and the healing that happened by us coming together was another reason that kept us coming back mm -hmm. we knew that we had opened up a space that was working on our own self-reclamation but also by virtue of our living example it was having a ripple effect on people and that's why the book was sold out after its first edition um, and the last thing was just about how we use performance, because a lot of us, as Mavis was saying, if your poetry or your story was activism, you were on political platforms, or you were in schools using it as education, or you were on heritage sites telling these poems and stories, and writing ourselves into that void where our voices were not acknowledged. Um, performing was the most natural thing to do we, as a selling point. Yeah. We weren't going to have shops taking them in the Bring conventional out. distribution mm -hmm. routes. Performance was a way of engaging with our community directly, who we were writing for. Mm -hmm. And they became the audiences that spread the, wor the word via viral, basically, before and they without social media. <laughs> and and oh, without the social media, and bought the yeah. books, and put it in their classrooms, <laughs> and got it into their women's writing, you know, book clubs yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Before we go on to the performance, the examples of it, I must also acknowledge Meredith Tax, yes. the role of Meredith Tax and Women's World, and that's when I also first met the Femme Rights of the World and Adu Aig, etc., because they really had the southern network, but also encouraging our work and taking our books to, to New York. Mm. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, we for me, it gave me an opportunity into writing. I didn't come from a reading culture, nor writing. But in our family, we weren't allowed to books because there's work to be done. But my dad brought the Cape Times and the Argus every day. So that was my reading material always. So I'm sort of grateful for Weave because it then gave me that. And since then, I've never, I've always kept, I write things and I throw it in drawers and I don't let anybody see it. Um, and it took me a long time after Weave to actually be confident about what I'm doing. So it made a big 
it gave me a great opportunity. And now she's and a published author. Every second meeting, Pat would go on and on about all her experiences as a laborer, as a working in the factories, etc. And she'd have these lovely I said, Pat, stop telling me right. And I promise you next week she'll say the same and I said, Pat, right. And she, she has, she has and the big labor history. Yeah, beautiful. And uh, you know, I want to read from the, just the acknowledgments. It's so beautiful in, in Cat Boiling Point. It says we would like to honor the contributions of all the people who at critical phases of our individual journeys affirmed our creativity and encouraged us to leap over that notorious chasm of self-doubt in order to openly say, I am a writer. Mm-hmm. So we can also talk about that. No, I can't yeah. say that. Well, yeah. I, <laughs> well, so, a writer and filmmaker. Yeah, so I think, you know, my, my introduction to Weave happened with Suraya Abbas, who was a friend yes. to all of us. Mm. And um, I met Malika at Molo Songololo. Um, and then Malika and I met afterwards, and, and you introduced me to Weave. I read some of my poetry to you, and I remember some of our first meetings at the theater lab in Woodstock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember those very clearly. And it, um, when I joined Weave, it was at a very vulnerable point in my life. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I shared this with you guys before, but. I had just recovered from a nervous breakdown and was in um, an institution for many months. And so we, for me, was like a sisterhood holding me together. And um, one of my poems, it's called Derailed. And I was on Prozac at the time. Mm. So I was struggling with my mental health in a big way. I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional. Absolutely, sis. I mean, that's the kind of holding space that it was. And sharing. And the courage to continue to write through it and to be seen and heard. You brought so much light into that circle. Mm. I think that at one stage, the two of us spoke because I too, at after prison, came out and was in an institution. And I think just briefly, we didn't elaborate, but we briefly shared our experiences. Yeah. as people who had mental health challenges. And I think that's an area of work that I really think that I'd like to explore and write at some other stage. Absolutely. It's very important for us. Oh, a priority. Yeah. More and yeah. more. Thank and you, Am, for sharing that. With the derailed, um, it was really written, I mean, I was in my early 20s, and for a generation of people who had run to ecstasy um, to find some kind of solace in this world, I was trying to make sense of my identity, being on drugs, Prozac and lithium, and all of these things, um, numbing my emotions. Mm. And yeah, I was in the space, being able to write, mm. you know, and just write with honesty. Mm. And so, without you people knowing it at the time, maybe. You were holding me together. Thanks. Oh, thank you for sharing that, Viam. Yeah. Yeah. So beautiful. Thank you, Viam. Sure. I, it just speaks also to how um, women's collectives are such holding spaces and such spaces of care, mm-hmm. and also how writing can be this outlet for 
um, for us to deal with these kinds of traumas and to share that is also quite a healing process. So it's just wonderful to hear wow. that kind of story and what it's meant to you. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I feel like a pause here, maybe. Can we, or should we just, let's carry on. <laughs> Are you okay to carry on? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just checking in if everyone's okay to carry on. Yeah. 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 Okay. I think that was. Me too. Yeah. We were yeah. going to go on to the performances. To the performances. Yeah. yeah. I've, right. got, I've got it here, mm -hmm. but I, I just wanted to give a yeah. moment. So, you mentioned um, the book launches, and of course, being poets and performers, there were lots of opportunities for being out in the world, and how performances were vehicles for sales and getting the collective known. So can we talk a little bit about some of the book launches and performances? Uh, you had the District 6 Museum book launch, um, a performance in Parliament, Iziko Museums at the Well while I was there. I remember that one very vividly um, and with Garth Erasmus um, mm. making music and it was a wonderful gathering and also here at Artscape. So um, Let's start with the book launch of Ink at Boiling Points. What kind of recollections do you have around that? Neighbours, would you like to share that around the book launch? I don't remember it very clearly, to be quite honest. I just remember it being a very joyful <laughs> <laughs> thing. I think well, that's important. That's, that's a lot. That's all, yeah. I think I've I was probably a bit overwhelmed by the yeah. fact that there were all these books and people were buying it and being interested in it and so on. And that's as far as I can remember. We, I, I have a series of printed photographs because we didn't all have our phones clicking in the digital uh, way that we yes. do now. Were phones mm -hmm. even able to... Did they have I don't think phones the time? were no, even working. Not then. <laughs> not then, I don't think so. So that's important to locate it mm. in just in terms of what that time was about. So I have these printed copies and in, an, in a subsequent 20 year later Facebook post, I, I took photographs and digitized oh. that moment. But also, when Barbara and I were talking about the preparation for this conversation, we spoke about just how evocative a photograph can be. Mm. And even this one that's in the opening mm. um, of the book expresses some of that joy. You were um, lying down in the middle of the avenue. I think we were on a, 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 a staircase okay. at McGendry's house. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, expressing that absolute joy. Um, and what I do remember was the fullness, exactly what you're saying. District 6 is a, is a community museum that has accomplished so much in terms of allowing the stories that would otherwise have faced erasure um, being visible. Mm. And so there were these banners with stories and street names and messages of affirmation and fragments of memory hanging behind us. Mm -hmm. And we were a vast diversity as across generations, very different styles in terms of dressing. I know I was highly pregnant with my son, Kamal, who is now three. I mean, was, no, he's now 23. I just missed the whole two decades right there. He's three, finishing his degree to rhyme, you know what I mean? Um, and and, and Shelley Barry in her glorious spinning wheels, yeah, her wheelchair, sitting regally in front. 
and I spoke to Gail Snayman at some point afterwards and she said, oh God, all I can remember was my big afro towering above <laughs> all of you because <laughs> she's quite tall and I said, oh, that's so beautiful. That was, that's exactly, you know, the beauty of us, our togetherness that I, is deeply imprinted mm -hmm. in my heart. And on the floor, the audience and anyone who came yeah. was walking on an actual street map Mm. of the demolished areas of District mm. 6. Very symbolic. And a lot mm. of Weave's existence, but also the spaces like the Whale Well, and even Artscape in its historical Nicomalan era, mm. we have stories buried in the concrete and in the earth that Weave going there to perform these performance rituals, with what I call them, because voicing is a conjuring. Mm. It's bringing it's into yeah. visibility and existence what may have been silenced, not allowed, or not seen or heard before. So there we were. That's that's my feeling. It's just this big tummy. <laughs> the glorious halo afro yeah. and how District 6 was already a lot of stories besides mm -hmm. each and every one of our faces mm -hmm. being there for this. Wow. And a pot that boils over. Like it's mm. called ink at boiling mm. point because we had enough <laughs> to boil over. But this, <laughs> you know, that's a very powerful... I'd, I'd like to talk about the uh, whale well because it was such a beautiful environment oh. with all these skeletons and the bluish hue. It was almost like a womb. Mm. And the audience, and for some reason, I then at that performance that McGanthry, I think, directed, mm. I did a poem that's not in the book, Really Woman. Mm. And I just remember the absolute enthusiasm of the audience. I was so excited. And then we had. The, almost the mystical, magical music of God. From Koi Connection. From Koi yeah. Connection. So there was the, the sound, the color, the audience, mm -hmm. the laughter, the sharing. And also, as I say, I, for the first time, did this poem, Really Woman, you know. Mm -hmm. And it was just such an incredible, I think, the, I think the support and the appreciation of the audience really did it. And I think also the, the magical way in which I think the entire performance was... Was, was woven together with the music, with the sound, with the color. I, I, I think and the, the title, Maps of Memory, yes. I think was so beautiful as we, and the beauty of it is allowed us to go as far back as we wanted, but was also, I remember so clearly your mom uh, going through dementia mm. or, or some mm -hmm. memory challenge, yes, yes, and yes. that was like, that was almost the catalyst yeah, even yeah, for the yeah. whole performance yeah, is like memory itself and how we you know negotiate memory but obviously it uh, being in the whale well I think it was an arts festival Cape Town Arts Festival mm. it was just so uh, I, I mean I think as part of my own uh, work the idea that we have women writers but we never we can't see them we don't know them the act of performing yeah. was mm -hmm. also reclaiming that space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in more recent eras, things like the Occupy movement, it felt like without the hashtag, that's yeah, what we were doing. Yes. Reclaiming the heart of within the heart of Ezekiel Museum. And even even if we're not published, yeah. we can still perform perform our poetry. Mm -hmm. And so we exist. We're creating that space, published or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And infusing memory, because yes. everyone who absorbed it, if you gathered audiences, anybody from that time, they would be 
holding pieces mm. of our archive. Yes. What that performance meant to Absolutely. them at that time, and mm. and people who knew what it meant. Yeah. We um. Do you recall some of the the performance at Parliament? So I have a vague recollection of the Parliament performance, and I think it was Gertrude Osuraya that arranged that. Although Gertrude doesn't remember the performance, I remember her there very clearly. I think I was a member of Parliament. Oh, she was a member of Parliament. Yes. <laughs> so I think you know she did. But you know, for me, the performative part of Weave is something I really enjoyed. Mm. Um, and there was so much um, affirmation in that. Uh, being to perform, being able to perform the written word, you know, and I particularly enjoyed watching Mavis and Gertrude perform. Yes, yes. yes. it just gave me so much inspiration. Yes, um, and uh, Mavis always had a beat that she that she performed to. A that rhythm. was very rhythmic, um, and almost in a way like a school teacher. That was <laughs> she comes from a background of being a teacher, so. Yeah, I loved performing with we. So the Parliament, I don't remember that clearly, but I know we did a really good show at Artscape, mm. uh, which was in alignment with a women's program. Yes. I can't mm. remember exactly. It was the women of the uh, the Artscape Women's Festival, but I th- it could have also been what Mel Falcon used to initiate The annually. Women's Festival. The yeah. Women of the World Festival, the mm. WOW oh, Festival. Yes, yes that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I directed that Artscape yeah. performance in the arena, and yes. what I, if I think about what each of us, what kind of thresholds each of us were crossing at the time, for me, being in, having a theatre background, it was absolutely at home to be mm. on stage on a mic in a theatre. Mm-hmm. But with someone like Shelley Barry, she she was literally pleading with me backstage <laughs> to say, I don't think I want to do oh, this. Oh. I'm ready, but I'm I'm not ready, you know. Um, and then feeling like just the fact that we were doing it together mm. was enough for her to feel that she could own her voice and and perform because this and now if you go online you can see Shelley <laughs> Barry performing in her wheelchair in a digital realm Absolutely. with confidence um, and really owning that voice and what I what was also really significant was besides we had we had so many performances it's not surprising that we don't remember all of them. <laughs> you also slightly older. Yes, there's also the patchy part about and we you weren't know, that good at archiving everything yeah. Yeah. because we were too busy doing. We're too busy doing. doing. Yeah. Too busy doing. Yeah. So now this archiving work. There's this last element that I wanted to add about what was significant that we only remembered yesterday in talking about it was that ETV was pretty new at the time and Mm -hmm. ETV did coverage on their main news bulletin of our week performance (laughs) as part of Roger Lucy's and weekly report on what was happening on the arts that weekend oh, or what had just that. happened the weekend so before. So we can find that archive. I, I have that archive. Oh! <laughs> I have it in VHS format. That tells you what era we were in. And Pat is dying to say something. Yes. I'm just, at least a poem gave me an inspiration to tell a publisher something that maybe they didn't want to hear. <laughs> Mavis wrote this poem on I cried the whole day Thursday. Cried the whole oh. day Thursday. <laughs> Spanner was rejected on a Thursday. Oh. So I cried the, the whole, whole day, day Thursday. <laughs> so now, if I'm sending off stuff now, I say, 
don't reject it on a Thursday. <laughs> I want to cry on another day. <laughs> so the standard of the works is your your autobiography on your working. Tell us the full title of yes. your book. Mm. Okay, it's spanner in the works. I was going to dump. I, it was just uh, notes I kept over years, diaries, nothing to do with opera. I just recorded, <laughs> and I wanted to get back at my bosses. And so I, I stood in my room, my little work makeshop workroom, and I was throwing keep, leave, keep, and I was going to dump this. Then I thought, maybe I need to give it one more chance. chance. But I needed somebody with a particular skill. And the only person I could think of was Uncle Croc, because she had a way of going in and out of periods. Mine sounded like a shopping list. Da 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 da. <laughs> the factory in that factory, that factory yes. in that boss. And then <laughs> I, I didn't know her, and and it sounded a bit pretentious to say, please introduce me to her. And being a lone operator, I stalked her on <laughs> the arts calendars. Okay. Came up with a function where she would be. I went to the function. I gate crashed. And she stood like this sort of distance, and I thought, I'm going to, Speak to her. talk to you now. Mm. But I'm also nervous, you know, because mm, she's a professor course. and she's, you know. She's famous. Yeah, she's famous, <laughs> you know. But I have a mother who sits on my shoulder who says, now my mother could only speak Afrikaans because I could only mm -hmm. speak Afrikaans when I came out of hospital. And she said to me, Das nicht to be a antworte, ja of nie. And I can't feel more. Bless your mama. So, uh, so Anki couldn't do that to you. So I went up to her and I told her who I am and I said, I'm doing this. And the rest was history. Wow. She, you know, unselfishly gave me so much time. Then, of course, I was faced with, oh, why did you ask a white woman? And I thought, you know what? Uh, mm. I was prepared to accept anybody from any color if they were going to help me. Yeah. Mm. And she was the first person, and she was absolutely amazing. So, let's talk about Love in the Making. Um, love in the Making weaves selection of love and erotica poetry is a Barefoots publication published in 2002. And Pat actually graces the cover in this gorgeous picture of her in her young, in her heyday. Um, one of her heydays, because she's still clearly in her current heyday as well. Yeah, um, <laughs> and this was a selection of love, poetry, and erotica. And this was also the occasion in 2002 of a wonderful event at All Nations Cafe in Observatory. And the book was, the booklet, it was called A Barefoot. It is a barefoot. It is, it is bound, spiral bound, and it was sold there. It sold out on the night. In 2008, Mavis gathered the manuscript again with a foreword by Khabiba Badarun, and there was a plan to have it actually formally published as a, as a not a barefoot, but a, a shoed book. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, let's talk about this and the, the poetry around erotica and love. And why was it important to celebrate love and erotica at that moment in 2002? Uh, it was also, oh, let me just add, it was also 
the going away occasion. It was a party to say goodbye to Shelley Barry. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, party yeah. for for New York um, for a fellowship to do at her Temple University. At Temple University, I think it was yes. Philadelphia. Yes, oh, at Temple University, yeah. in order to do her MFA in filmmaking. So, to what happened at that event? This was I think at some stage there was a discussion about what we write about mm -hmm. and how there's almost like a self-censorship mm -hmm. in terms of writing about sex or erotica. Mm -hmm. And then I think someone just said, well, let's start. But also, you know, I remember leaving that, and uh, we were there for a couple of hours, and I've never been poetry person, I do like it but I mean I don't spend as much time on poetry than on and I left there thinking my goodness I didn't think that poetry would take up all these hours and we were nicely sozzled and we had a <laughs> lovely time and just for me it was I thought wow that so, so it's also sparked my interest again in poetry yeah and music was and in music, the room. Yes. Yeah. Tina Scow, Cape Town Jazz, and musicians yes. played. And Garvey Raspas was there yeah. also bringing his Uhadi and that indigenous rhythm to some of the performances. And I remember we had had a workshop with Anne. I was still going to Anne's uh, writing workshops. And she was talking about how you can, can perform. And you can say your poem while doing different activities and that will affect the whole performance of it. Mm -hmm. And I remember on, I cried the whole day Thursday, I got up on chairs and I said, and I cried the whole day Thursday. <laughs> I was walking around and oh my word. <laughs> and the person for whom I cried the whole day Thursday was there and he didn't Ooh. know it. Oh. I'm the first woman chairperson of a duchy from church council, a very conservative church, and I was the chairperson and an elder. And there I was reading these poems, and I had all these difficult and mixed emotions on the one hand, celebrating because I wrote to some person who I was so in love with, and I remember I was in the States for a long time and, and that person was in South Africa, and I used the compass image. <laughs> I think, doesn't even one of the metaphor, metaphorical poets also use that compass image? Mm. Anyway, but I, I had such, and I was just hoping, no one from the church must be, no one from the church must be. <laughs> Besides our own intimate, like, cringing around it, there was, you know, like, oh, you know, you know, wondering what your mother might think or whatever, your father or whatever. But all, just that thing about, yes, we are, please come in here. Just that lo the last element about the claiming of voice. I think that the decision to do it was all these reasons as well as... The idea that black women only write about their suffering exactly. and their politics, yes. and, their politics yes. and we wanted to own our wholeness in mm. all aspects mm. of That's ourselves. And yes. so this yes. was, for me, quite a, a, you know, a fresh foray. And, <laughs> and possibly even a political act. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Writing about yeah. love yeah. and erotica. And, yes. and pleasure. Right? Uh, pleasure. pleasure. Yes. Getting and rid of the self-censorship, huh? Yes. Yeah. And, and just being able to say... Yes, we are all this, and we do love. Mm. And the truth is, none of us had to go and write. 
We had, we had the work. We write about it, yes, you know. Yes. But we just hadn't, uh, and and I don't think Ink at Boiling Point has many of our romantic, erotic, erotic mm. love mm. stuff. Yes. So it was also that Another absence point in the yeah. You know mm. that mm. absence, like oh yeah, okay, great. Uh, but here's all these other parts of us mm. um, yeah. Yeah, no, that I'm we need to celebrate. And as I say, everyone had the poetry. We didn't have to look very far. I had a um, minister, parliament, prime minister who referred to me as a bumbo. Ooh. As a what? A bumbo. bumbo. Oh. oh. I didn't mind being called a bumbo <laughs> <laughs> because I then said to him, you show me somebody the side of the equator who can sing, who can dance, who can sew, who can do everything. And else. At that dance and discuss Lenin's theories of imperialism. <laughs> now go and take a jump. <laughs> because he couldn't do that. Yes, All those exactly. things at one time. Exactly. <laughs> the so definition of the word bimbo. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> yes, so I don't actually know the problem being a bimbo. <laughs> so, yeah, let's reclaim that. Maybe you decide to take Pat as the as the cover. The cover. I, I think I must have been in so Johannesburg at that stage. Yeah. However, I mean, that photograph no, came into that our photograph. orbit. You no. showed it to me, and you I said, "Let's put it." Yes, and then you gave it to me, and I said, "We're going to put it." Yeah, because it should be because this was in your dancing days. Remember, you used to be dancing at night clubs. Did took that picture? Well, he was stalking right up to you. Yeah, and for those who can't see it, it's Pat wearing a belly dancing skirt in a beautiful, you know, an exotic headgear. Yeah, and a cleavage. Cleavage slips everything. Well, you know, my, I have it at home as well, and I did not that one, but the other one that I think we used as a bookmark. Yes, we yes. have yes. a bookmark out of the poem at the back. Yes, yes. And because people don't recognize me when they see it, and I just leave it and I wait for them to say, and then say, oh, who's this? A conversation starter. Yeah. Love it. Yes, let's um, talk about these dispersion like seeds. So everyone, the, the group ended, um, people moved on, but what did Weave mean to you in terms of your trajectory and what you've done in the meantime? It's been 20, 26 years since Weave's formation, 23 years since Pink at Boiling Point. What were the, the fruits that came out of it? I think some of us were just on different continents mm. and countries, and I, for example, went to Rwanda which was just a wonderful experience for five years of teaching. Finished my PhD and then just, you know, did more academic writing and publishing. So that was also, you know, my trajectory. And apart from the nonfiction, I also did, 30 years later, my prison <laughs> memoirs, which, by the way, was, um, was prescribed for the African Feminist Studies at UCT. So that was my trajectory, going to Rwanda and that being, being in that environment... I think that's where, because of the incredible atmosphere of Rwanda of reconciliation, of restoration, of forgiveness, I then started writing my book. We are? Okay, so I think uh, Weave was a springboard for me to explore authorship. And 
I started as an arts journalist, but then worked my way into the film industry. And subsequently made District 6 Rising from the Dust, uh, which documents the story of my family's forced removal from District 6. And then also um, a short film called To Use, which is in a sense uh, biographical uh, and looks at the life of a woman of bipolar disorder in the, in the form of a fiction piece. And that, that film has done really well. But also in my tra trajectory, I'm learning that authorship in the film industry for women of color, for black women, it's really, really difficult mm. uh, to own your space to tell your story and to write your narrative the way you want to write it without having those, uh, for lack of a better word, those white male gatekeepers or threshold guardians involved in your work, it becomes incredibly difficult to produce your, wo your work autonomously, you know. So having had Weave as a springboard to own my story, to tell my story, and having gotten to a certain level, I'm also realizing that there still are so many barriers for us mm -hmm. um, in terms of authorship, especially in the film industry. Mm -hmm. I'm sure Gantry can also add to that, yeah. and probably Shelley too, huh? Mm -hmm. in yeah. terms of film. Yeah. For me, it, I feel the same way. It's that window opportunity that I got for that. I feel less now insecure because I always did, I used to hide my stuff away, I didn't want people to see it. Suddenly I came up with a whole lot of titles that I can write around. And it gave me, even in terms of, you know, you look for titles. Uh, uh, one of my stories too, and I wasn't sure about this, my young friend, when, I mean, we were children when we became friends, and neither of us were meant to walk. And so I called it, I had it, childhood friends. I thought, that sounds boring. And I came up with defeated, but spelled F-E-E-T. Yeah, feet. E -D, so that, you defeat. know. Defeat. Mm. Yeah, defeat. Yeah. So either way, we weren't defeated. We weren't. <laughs> so it's given me, I don't think I can stop now. In fact, <laughs> I've got two projects on mm. the go. Mm. I mean, it's, I'm going to start as soon as I submitted the other things. Um, yeah, so... Exactly. Mm. I'm interested in a coffee table book of the dancers who have not had given recognition. Wonderful. In wow. the past. Wonderful. Yeah, so... Sorry, I just want to say, I don't know how much time has left for me to do that, but... <laughs> as a, you can as only a, start as where a, you as are. As an 80-year-old. Next year, yes. Oh, next year as an 80-year-old, and wow. I think the, the, the gogo of the group... <laughs> not the grand gogo of the group. Great-grand-gogo. Yeah, since we've... Although I, I have to tell this little story, because mm -hmm. from the time we started... Two children later, one who just turned 25, the other one 22, oh. uh, two feature films later, and over 40 documentaries. Oh, wow. Um, so I can still say I still struggle yeah. with owning I am a writer. Mm. So that's still a journey that I'm working through, mm. but I'm going to get there. I'm determined mm. to get there. Mm. Hopefully yeah. next year I can dedicate the time to do that and claim that more significantly. Yes, I write, but the mm -hmm. I have a writer part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, I was in this fabulous book. <laughs> yeah. um, 
and you know I have self-published but it's still that notion of like claiming it in all its forms so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm still on that journey but I am so proud of us for having held the space for each other uh, and held each other to be able to self-publish uh, Ink at Boiling Point. Mm. I think we may underestimate its significance, but I think it was definitely a catalyst yeah. um, for many people. And I think its work is not yet done. <laughs> In fact, that's what I was going to say now, because I think you... You, some say we still have claim in the word I am a writer mm-hmm. and I think that maybe just to thank Malika for initiating this that maybe it's also a time for phase two that maybe mm-hmm. still picking up because just like you too I have manuscripts on Rwanda I still have to redo the book of the women's history because that the women's political history because the book was published in Germany and it cost 2,000 rand, and seven years later, it's 1,200 rand. So I've got to do a Cape Town publishing. So yes, <laughs> I have all these things. But I think also that the time post we was also what my friend Bridget Prince, she said, you know, the, PhD, the, the, the exiles all came back from the struggles with PhDs, and we were in the trenches all the time. And that's why it's time for us to do our PhDs and do our writing. Mm. So I think that also just coincided. Mm. And, you know, more time. You don't have to be in the trench, but you can actually sit at your desk or even on the beach and just write. Mm. So I think I still need this. Mm. I still need the support and the sharing. And maybe because more people or younger people watch films, I think we should really also explore how we take some of our poetry and put it into YouTube or whatever. Yeah, 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 but yeah. also, can you tell us about your memoir that was published last year, Gertrude? Yes. I was... You probably know that, for me, the solitary confinement was very difficult. But the one thing, and I also say this ironically, because I never, ever had time to write as a feminist political activist, you know. The struggle was everything. And, like, you know, you just... I think we had a martyr culture. We never, mm-hmm. ever considered ourselves... Mm-hmm. It, was just, it was meetings all the time and work all the time and rolling off that Kostetna. I don't know if you remember the Kostetna at 1 a.m. because mm-hmm. at 5 a.m. you've got to be at Salt River Station or Stop Station. Mm-hmm. So we never actually had lives. And I remember telling lives one day I was going to a funeral in the rural area so I could have a weekend off. That was <laughs> the only thing was accepted. <laughs> it was a funeral so in the rural area so I didn't know. So, yes, so I had my little bits of my play which I did at the Beijing uh, conference. It was, a, it was a survival mechanism in prison to just relate what you see, the birds, the colours, the sounds. Hurrah, it's carnival time. I'm getting the music from Maynardville, you know. Mm-hmm. So that was my saving because I had the play. But I also the whole thing, am I a writer? And, and fortunately, I had, like, some of these bits of pieces, like Pat, with all the writing, and I still have it. Lots and lots Drossful. of lots of writing, <laughs> yeah. and um, then I had a chapter on the struggle, solitary confinement, and the trial. So only three chapters, and um, Department of Military Veterans then also approached me and gave me a support through someone from HSRC. And that person said, "No, but you've got to write. Why you were in the struggle? Why you were so you know?" And so I did a sort of autobiographical bit. You know, in my childhood, and uh, and they said, no, but women—they're so part of your life. So I have a chapter on women, and they said, 
but you wanted to interview your interrogator and torturer, why? And I then explained about Rwanda, how people were on opposite sides of the, of the fight and how they came together and said, I forgive you. And for three months a year, every year, they talk about, I forgive you. Or they tell their story or they share their pain and they also dig up bodies and rebury them. Wow. So coming from that context of Rwanda, I wanted to see my interrogator and I couldn't get his phone number. And eventually I remembered that he always worked with the Minister of Correctional Services and I phoned him up and I got him. And I was scared to phone him. And so when I was at Canal Walk with hundreds of people, I suddenly just phoned him. Because I thought this is the support of people. And then he started shouting at me that I'm telling lies about him. I said, I've never used your name. I've never used your name, anything. And then I just breathed. And I said, no, but this is my phone call. I want to interview you. And then he said, no, I'll send an email. So I sent, so he sent an email, which I have in the book. And so that was so a chapter of Rwanda. And then I also have the afterword about the fact that I didn't realize that I didn't have a choice to have a child. And that was my little bit of sadness, but also important to address that, you know, and also then having a bit of relapse mentally. But yeah, with therapy and wonderful yeah. friends and talking about pain, that yeah. and, and, writing and writing really is therapeutic. Oh, very, very, very. I mean, Anki suggested, she offered me to do a master's at PwC. Even the petrol was thrown in for free. And then I use a uh, writing yeah, at, uh, um, as the thesis. And I said, I actually don't want to do that because it's then going to become an academic exercise. And I wanted people to be able to identify that, to resonate with people because they, I believe there are a whole lot of people. I write about things people don't like talking about. I put it out there. And I think it's important for people to do their stories. I sat with a woman on my way to Maputo once and I chat to anybody and I asked her, what are you doing? Oh, I'm a, I'm a minor. I looked at her and I said, are you recording this? No. I said, your grandchildren need to know that my grandmother was a minor. You know, so it's those, so my main thingy at the moment is to encourage people. Mm. to write. Mm. I've addressed some filmmaking, young filmmakers, and I'm available to speak if people want me to be on a platform like that and to mm. show them, because I say to them, just open up a five-minute thingy on your, TikTok, uh, from your, no, on your computer <laughs> and put stuff in there. Don't worry about anything else. You go back to it, start something else. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. Mavis. Oh, okay. So I started work on Robben Island in 1997, and I just finished my theory course for a master's in history, and Robben Island grabbed my imagination, and I started working there in 2000, and I didn't have time to do anything else but what uh, the interviewing of ex-political prisoners and then, of course, we did exhibitions, and I wrote the text of about 12 temporary exhibitions that was put up, exhibited in the Nelson Mandela Gateway. I had also learned and embraced the whole notion of identity and koi koi and who were living here and so on. 
Uh, I'm talking about the Horing Hype Corner tribe that is where the Amazon building is now and who had fought the first battle against the Portuguese envoy of India and beat him and they ran off. And so that was their first victory against the formal uh, army, so to speak. So I did that exhibition of Ojimato, I did the exhibition of Steve Biko. The Ojimato exhibition was so dear to my heart because I always read stuff of people who wrote about indigenous people. And I wondered how I could write this exhibition without writing about people. And so I invented the wind because the wind was very important to Koi Koi history. I mean, they believed that the wind would come and blow away the dead man's footsteps. And so the narrator was the wind. And mm. so, the, and the wind is on their side mm. and sometimes not on their side. Mm. And when the accidents happen, then the winds, you know, may be angry with them or so. And that was like really uh, those two exhibitions, the one that was at the GT1 and the other one, and the others were all at the Gateway. And so I did write a lot. I also, in that 2004 Wow Women's program at Artscape, I wrote, um, it was the 10th anniversary of the Republic, not of the Republic of Freedom, the, the new democratic <laughs> South, South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so I wrote it in starting with 94 and going back, 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 mm. and ending again in 97 when I wrote a poem about all of us, you know, and how we must actually be proud of who we are, of all these streams of influence from East and West yes. and African that's who we are. And I also collaborated with Malika to write a skit that was This New Day, <laughs> which was here at, at Artscape. Okay. And I wrote the dialogue between an ex-political prisoner and a warden and how they related to each other when afterwards, you know, and the whole dynamics of that. And I must say, it was like so amazing when I sat in this theater and, and I saw them professional actors doing it. Hmm. It was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> that's my work. Your yes. words from the page yeah. to the stage. Yeah. Yeah. Don't so, forget your feelings and feet. Please mention your publication. Your oh, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't find it this morning. I did my feelings and feet publication. And I did some other um, self-published, I did a lot actually. Uh -huh. You know, this whole barefoot thing resonated with me. I wasn't actually, even in the 80s, I wasn't really in so much interested in being published because I was enjoying performing so much. Yeah. And it was like an immediate thing. Mm. So people identified with the words. So, uh, yeah, but then I did, um, I did a little self-publication of what I call my God poems, and then I did a self-publication of my school poems, and then, of course, Feelings and Feet, which was, um, was actually very well received, and people said, mm. you must go for that, you must do it in schools, mm. but I never got around to doing that. Mm. Yeah, and after that, I kind of slowed down, 
I wrote a lot of poems on Robin Island. Yeah. I wrote the ones that was part of the artist in residence. And then when I was working there, and Robin Island changed from what it was, from this dream of what we were going to do and how it was going to be. And it just became so terrible. And uh, so I wrote a lot of work-related poems about dreams that are deferred and gone and missing. Mm. And also, the, I think you were in, was it you or somebody else that you knew that was interested in the poems that I wrote yes. about Winston and Irene who got married on Robin uh, Island, yes. that it was all in Oh, we, I think we wrote for an animation company. Yes, yes. And yes. Dila Khan, who is a founder member, yeah. wrote Engaging the Shades of Robin oh, Island. Yeah, all the poems. A really powerful collection of she poems did. that came yeah. from her time there, but also yeah. a really mm. deeply researched mm. and... Mm beautifully articulated. Some of us still have print copies of yeah, that. I have it. Now, that's so actually to encourage Mavis to maybe do that too. Yes, yeah. oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Malika and Lobo, what did you <laughs> do since Well, then? since we're on the Spanish island, it's <laughs> actually taking me back to 97, which was the formation of WE, but it was also my first encounter with McGendry, who invited me to be part of a Robin Island debut performance. Uh-huh when the museum was turning to, uh, well, the prison was turning to museum and formed a collective called Red Rituals. And then around the same time, there was this, you know, if you think about it in mycelial ways, we didn't, we didn't know that there were tentacles reaching out towards what would then become weave. Mm. Um, and for me, subsequent to weave, the second edition came out and whatever my role, and I, I worked on Robin Island also in my first year from KwaZulu as the artist in residence mm. um, project manager with Zaid Minty, whose name I also definitely always want to acknowledge, just recently got his PhD posthumously. Oh, yeah. Um, but who really opened the way a lot in terms of recognizing the poetry and arts as the language through which our heritage work, our activism, and our healing could mm. continue in all these multiple forms. And so what happened for me after Ink at Boiling Point is that I, at the next Woman of the World, the next WOW Festival 2002, I had had an experience with Islam that felt like an awakening. My name shifted from Luwin to Malika. And I was busy with a multimedia installation of, you know, interviews called Voices of Nisa. Uh, interviewing and working with uh, Rudeba Peterson and a, a range of other people around globally Muslim mm. women's voices that I also that had a diversity other than what was the stereotype I felt of what Muslim mm. women are in Cape Town. Mm. And I was having a different kind of experience, wanted to work with various media to do that, discovered I was pregnant while working at the castle, another Iziko mm. site of major charge. And didn't realize that a year later, my daughter Iman Bongiwe would be stillborn. And so in that January of 2003, I kind of, after all this productivity and abundance, went into a very deep underwater space, I want to say, from which I emerged, you know, gradually with the birth of my son Kwezi a year and a bit later. So it and felt like anthology. Exactly. So a book called Invisible Earthquake, a woman's journal through stillbirth, which again, as you said, with your prison diaries in a way, was a way of capturing daily 
just writing to get through the day, but mm, also to pain. take photographs in a way that mothers would usually do of every change in the child. I was capturing in poetry and narrative um, things I didn't want to forget. Um, so three years later, Mojaji, six years later, Mojaji Books published that uh, collection. And w because of Weave as a performance collective, <laughs> and the wind agrees, <laughs> um, I had formed this time a not exclusive, exclusively black women's collective called And the Word Was Woman. So some of the, performer, the, the members of Weave who were more open to performance and some new members joined at the time to create this ensemble of poets who did a range of performances also on different sites in Cape Town. Around that same period, 2004 into 2006, I collaborated with Ernie Dean and Tina Scow to form Woman Tide. Can you hear the woman part doesn't leave the equation? <laughs> the acronyms change, <laughs> gender is in a way. And again, yeah, multimedia, because, you know, for me, it's the, the life of the po poetry is also, sound is poetry, dance is poetry, film is poetry, it's all. Um, in 2008, I collected, because of that spiritual awakening around Islam, also had quite a lot of work in the, the Trooper Spirit and Flesh solo collection at the time, a range of tributes and also really focused on that spiritual journey as well. And everything since then has always, even before I came to Cape Town, had a personal mantra of healing through creativity. So I was healing in multiple ways, even if it was this heritage redress erasure work, but all the way to that really intimate place of the womb. Um, from 2002, Womb to World, A Labor of Love, which Nancy Richards from Women's Zone was actually integral in terms of getting it out there through a radio show and and endorsing the book and its launch again at the District 6 Museum. Um, and that idea of also radio, if I can leap back from 2002 to 2011 onwards, was Badilisha Poetry uh, Exchange, became badiliciapoetry.com, the first African poetry podcasting platform that came about through the Africa Center which really, at the point that I was in 2011 going onwards, I was tired of live performances. I was tired of mothering, I want to say, collectives. And I had two growing children, or three actually, and I loved just going into studio like we are now, with just me and the mic, and working with that audio and digital version of a podcast that could archive which is again what we are trying to insert into memory and the landscape of women's writing is this archive in this podcast form. And that healing through creativity has become my life practice. It's an expanded applied arts, art therapy, arts in medicine work. So I'm less on stage, less doing the corporate gigs because the practice has really become about the healing through the our creative methods before it was the creative methods with the healing agenda. It feels like it's the same thing, but mm -hmm. essentially. Um, and then lastly, I have a publication coming out that really focuses on the generative nature of grief, and it's called Grief Seed, and I hope 2024 is when that baby will be born. Oh, You're lovely. wonderful. You. You know, I've been asked by somebody to do um, have a conversation with Jan van Riebeek, that could be exciting. I, I will, the next time we meet, we will yeah, yes. have the script yes, already. Yes, just what I want to say. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I also wanted to say that, talking about healing, 
I didn't say, but I also wrote quite a few plays. And the one lookalike terrorist was actually performed here and was one of the top plays of 2019. But just to say, in terms of healing, I was en route to Rome and via Turkish and by Istanbul, and I was detained and stripped naked. We and Istanbul. so that was the play that I wrote. Yeah, As a that, response. while I was while I was travelling in Italy, I was en route to Rome, mm. and so yes, just to to re to reassert the healing power that, I mean, I was totally traumatized. Mm. Why up did to, they do that? Up to today, I don't know why. I mean, everything was in Turkish, right? Mm. So, but just to emphasize the healing, and there I was, a, and I had my iPad with me, so every night after seeing Da Vinci or Mark, my whoever, whoever, you know, I'd just write a bit, and it's very, very important. A place to put it yeah. down. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So we can see such a rich web of connections that was formed, and Weaver's been, it was an, a thing in itself, it was an organization, it came from these deep historical roots, but also became a conduit for all this amazing work that has been seeded, to use the term, that has been used here several times, and ongoing work. And it's also so amazing to see, you know, Pat, you said you're, you're 80, you're turning 80, and the, the creativity is just continuing. It's not stopping. And so this is a, a, a kind of set of events that was set in motion during that time, such a fertile ground, fertile soil for what we're seeing coming out still into 26 years later. Mm-hmm. So... I'm hoping to walk on water Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that, you know, the important so thing also to remember is that it would... that <laughs> this work will be ongoing. It's very difficult at this point, even 26 years later, to say this is, this is how we assess the legacy of Weave. Because mm-hmm. I think the legacy of Weave will be running for another century, perhaps, and beyond that, <laughs> yeah. you know, in your children, Magantri, in your children, Malika, we um, in mm. your great-grandchildren, Pat, those legacies will continue. And so to end, we thought of Weave doing the poem that was very popular, I remember this. Just a refrain, really, a chant that affirms that permission which one is it? Just this, every story knows its teller, because that's a lot of what we were mm. asserting throughout Weave, that claiming of the voice. <laughs> we'll just start it. It's a bit like a nursery rhyme. <laughs> every story knows its teller. Every story has its time. Yours and mine has its place. And time. Yes, one more. Every story has its teller. Every story has its time. Yours and mine has its place and time. It's time. Well, lovely that all of the Weave members attending this reunion were able to share details of their personal writing journeys. And as a bonus, here are some thoughts from a few of the other members who were not able to be in Cape Town at the time of this recording. In this order, they are Diana Ferris, Haile Sitlana, Shelley Barry, and finally, closing this abundant reflection on the legacy of Weave, 
the voice of Barbara Boswell, sharing her own story. What great memories we bring back. Uh, it was uh, really a very strong group that held performances and ink at boiling point. It's um, a great uh, publication. I had the chance to publish my my story about my writing of the poem for Sarah Bartman. And yeah, it was just so wonderful to see it in, in, in that book, Ink at Boiling Point. Yes, I remember so clearly that erotic love poetry performance we had at All Nations in Observatory. What a lovely night that was. Um, myself and Khadija, Tracy Heger, we attempted and we did it successfully, a multilingual performance as part of that uh, erotic love poetry evening. Uh, it worked beautifully. We had lots of compliments afterwards. Uh, Kadida did so so well. She she read the English part and I read the Afrikaans part, but we did did it sort of simultaneously. And uh, it's a, it's memories, the title of of the poem, Herinneringen, and um, it ends with niks, a seker daar as ek en jy, wat stadig aan vervaag tot skadewees. Nothing is more certain than me and you slowly fading into shadows. Ah, what a lovely time it was. It was a time when we still explored and the support the women gave each other, those that are gone now and those that have grown in stature, Weave is really a wonderful, wonderful memory of the beginning of my career as a poet and, and, and a performer. I'm very grateful for what Weave did for me and uh, what it meant to me at that time. Such a lot of Weave members are now in their own huge space. What a wonderful testimony to writing as a group, writing to writing for freedom, writing for healing. And may we all continue as we remember we've to write for for ourselves, for women, for black women, for the world. May we all continue to walk steadfastly on this road. We started walking when we created Weave. Thank you to everybody in Weave for what they've done and still doing. Viva, viva to all of us. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, this is Hali Sehlana. And this is my walk down the memory lane of the richly woven tapestry of Weave. Every time we performed with the Weave sisters, 
it was like a journey of growth and self-discovery. The performance at the Whale Well is most memorable to me because I learned some interesting lessons about myself. I don't remember the specific poem we were performing, but I remember the lesson I learned. I was required to let go and relax, falling gently into the outstretched arms of the sisters, but for some reason I couldn't. In my mind, I instantaneously journeyed back to childhood, where someone would throw me up in the air, but not catch me falling. We rehearsed this several times, but at that moment, it became clear that the power of the poem was unearthing in my mind something bigger that needed to be dealt with, something that needed to be healed. Our poetry together had a cascading effect in my life that lasted long after we performed and read poems together. I was then enrolled for a Master of um, Education, but I quickly enrolled for a Master of uh, Arts in Creative Writing at UCT through the inspiration of Weave, and I graduated in 2002. By this time, I was already a lecturer in the English department at UWC. I published a few poems online, and one of my poems, titled Sleeping Dinosaurs, caught the attention of organizers of the International Year of Mountains, sponsored by UNESCO. I was then invited to travel to India to attend the Mountain Symposium and to see the Himalayas in person. What an experience! In 2004, I joined the University of Stellenbosch English Department, where I taught English literature and creative writing for almost 13 years. I took the opportunity to teach some of our poetry from Ink at Boiling Point and other collections, thoroughly enjoying unpacking and analyzing our poetry through the fresh eyes of students. It was always interesting to hear new interpretations of our work. The love for writing and performance led me to organize students to form the Stellenbosch Poetry Society. We even performed at the National Arts Festival in Grahamstown. Among young creatives, I felt alive and with purpose. It was not just work as a lecturer that was fulfilling, but a sense of belonging and purpose. In the English department, I held the position of community liaison whereby my task was to bring the university to the people by impacting the community of Stellenbosch with what I was already doing in the department. With more colleagues interested in creative writing and performance, we formed the Stellenbosch Literary Project, commonly known as SLEEP, which for many years and until now has hosted various local and international poets and has grown beyond our wildest imagination as a hub for community engagement in both the literary and performance spheres. I conducted creative writing workshops for teachers and learners in the local schools of Stellenbosch. I remember driving all the way to the mighty Otaniqua Mountains with Diana Ferras to facilitate writing workshops at the Otaniqua Poetry Festival. Those were the days of regular poetry and performance and this kept my writing current. Poetry gave me wings to travel to different countries, including Germany and South Korea, where I attended literature festivals. Some of my poems have been translated into Afrikaans, French, and Korean. 
it is always a joy to open up my poetry to an audience in another language. The WIF reunion is for me a spiritual revival. There is a lot of inspiration and marvel at what the sisters have individually achieved. I was feeling like I had reached the plateau of my poetic journey, but now I hear the sounds of spring and the soothing coolness in the shadows of greatness. New offerings are already brewing for 2024. Being in a collective challenges one and creates a sense of accountability and intrinsic motivation for excellence. I'd like to share an extract from my PhD thesis in 2022, where I wrote a little bit about WEAVE. Being part of the Black Women's Writing Collective WEAVE nurtured my growth as a writer. Malikan Glovo, performance poet and writer, was instrumental in encouraging me to take my writing seriously. And in 2000, we published Ink at Boiling Point. The writing by and about black women also had a significant influence on my development as a writer. Being part of the burgeoning publication wave of black women's writing from 2000 to 2022 in South Africa inserted me into an environment where black women claimed literary room. Khabiba Badarun explains that writing by black women in South Africa enabled the remaking of public space while emerging from being largely exiled by publishing and academia. By creating room, we build worlds. By being in them, by bringing our embodied knowledge with us, and by recreating the world that has to ultimately transform to include us. Stories are a bridge to inclusion. So I just wanted to share that short extract um, and reflect on how Malika literally pulled me out of the writing closet. <laughs> um, I was so nervous and shy to share my poetry and my writing, but really the encouragement from Malika and all the other wonderful women um, in the Weave Collective, you know, we really nurtured one another. And I think that there was something so absolutely beautiful about it. And I always treasure that time, that, that way, the way in which we built community and made our work visible was absolutely incredible. I'd like to reflect just a little bit about Love in the Making, our book that only exists as a barefoot publication. And I really think that we need to revisit that at some point as well. But I remember the event where we launched our little barefoot publication. I was actually leaving Cape Town to go to Pretoria, where I was going to work at the presidency. And I was always someone who used to have many, many gatherings and parties, as people may remember. And that was one of those events, a moment of farewell. And... It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. Um, the live performance that we had, we had integrated dance. Garthi Rasmus was there experimenting with poetry and his saxophone. It was just a really magical, magical night that I will always remember. So yes, we've got many, 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 many memories. <laughs> And all of them are incredibly special.
I think it's really wonderful that we have stayed in touch with one another over the years and remain a close-knit circle of friends, even though we don't see each other all the time or sometimes not very often or sometimes not for years. There is a strong bond that still exists and friendships that have been nurtured over time and the act of witnessing, you know, being able to see people branch into their various careers and and to see how people have grown and gone on to do absolutely incredible work. So it really is a privilege to know everyone that was part of we. Incidentally, one of the first short documentaries I ever made was about Weave. It was a short film um, about our first publication. And it exists somewhere in my archive. I need to track it down and find it amidst all the um, little mini DV tapes. It was really just the beginning. I was learning how to edit and uh, made this short piece. So I hope to find it when I revisit my archive next year and be able to screen it because it is such um, a moment. And I would, of course, love to see it again and share it with the rest of the Weave Collective. So we do have some recordings of, of that time. And of course, that is absolute treasure right now. Hello, this is Barbara Boswell. I'm the author of Grace, a novel, the academic monograph and wrote my story anyway, Black South African women's novels as feminism and a book on Loretta Nobo, writing as the practice of freedom. Currently, I am an associate professor at UCT in the Department of English Literary Studies, where I also head the department. I was very privileged to encounter Weave as a woman in my 20s. I started out in this group as the administrator, helping them with administrative tasks such as correspondence, doing emails, planning events, planning performances, and then also working on republishing the second edition of the publication Inc. at Boiling Point. It was at this time that I was also doing my master's at the University of the Western Cape in Gender and Women's Studies. And when it came time for me to write my thesis, I pondered on what, is, what it was that I most wanted to learn and what I wanted to immerse myself in. And here I was in the midst of this amazing group of women and I wanted to study black women's writing. I'd always been obsessed with it. And so I was so fortunate to be able to conduct my MA thesis on the writers of Weave and how they construct their identity as writers. I interviewed many of them and also observed them and was just with them a lot. And so my thesis flowed from that. This enabled me eventually to win a Fulbright scholarship to the US where I started a PhD also in women's studies. I went on to do a PhD thesis on black women's writing and how they constructed the nation and the self, which then became my second book, The Monograph, and wrote my story anyway. When I returned to South Africa in 2013, 
I then also became a published author because the longing of my heart really was to write and publish my own fiction. So I became successful at that and I attribute it partly to my exposure to women, the women I met at Weave. Prior to meeting them, I had not known any black woman in South Africa, had not come into contact with any black woman who looked like me and who had written, published poetry, short stories, fiction, academic work. And so this was a real education for me. It was such a learning for me to be in that environment and I absorbed so much like a sponge. And most importantly, I was able to see that it is possible for someone like me who comes from the Cape Flats, from Alsis River, to also write and publish and become a writer. I want to thank Weave for allowing me to see the possibilities for my own life allowing me to become a scholar and allowing me also to become the fiction writer that I have become. I write academic articles also and wrote two that encompassed the work of Weave. My first publication as an academic was on Weave and it was an article on how they construct the identity and the importance of such a movement as a cultural movement in South African literature. My latest publication, or one of my latest publications, looks at the publication of Love in the Making and how this is one of the very few collections of poetry that celebrates black women's bodies, sexuality, at a time when black women were really being cast as victims only. So... I attribute their work to really giving the space for other black women writers and poets to blossom into what we have now in South Africa, really an explosion of literature produced by black women. And there's so much there that I think we've enabled. So thank you, Weave. Thank you for all the beautiful work you've put in the world. And thank you for making it possible for black women like me to dream. Hello.